This is episode number 539 with Serge Massis, agronomic data scientist at Syngenta and author of Interpretable Machine Learning. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, the most listened to podcast in the data science industry. Each week, we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build a successful career in data science. I'm your host, John Crone. Thanks for joining me today. And now, let's make the complex simple. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast. Today's guest is the absolutely brilliant Serge Massis. Serge is a climate and agronomic data scientist at Syngenta, one of the world's leading agricultural companies. He's author of the book, Interpretable Machine Learning with Python, an epic hands-on guide to techniques that enable us to interpret, improve, and remove biases from machine learning models that might otherwise be opaque black boxes. And he holds a master's degree in data science from the Illinois Institute of Technology. In this episode, Serge details what interpretable machine learning is, the key interpretable ML approaches we have today and when they're useful, the social and financial ramifications of getting model interpretation wrong, what agronomy is, and how it's increasingly integral to being able to feed the growing population on our warming planet, what it's like to be a climate and agronomic data scientist day to day, and why you might want to consider getting involved in this fascinating high impact field. He also covers his productivity tips for excelling when you have as many big commitments as he does. Today's episode does get technical in parts, but Serge and I made an effort to explain many technical concepts at a high level where we could. So today's episode should be equally appealing to both practicing data scientists and anyone who's keen to understand the importance and impact of interpretable ML or agronomic data science. All right, you ready for this brilliant episode? Let's go. Serge, welcome to the podcast. It's awesome to have you here. It's so great to see you again. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. I am. <laughs> nice. So, I complain. Uh, we're recording at Christmas time. Uh, people are on holidays, and they often think of Christmas as kind of a snowy situation. But you, uh, if people are watching the video version on YouTube, clearly are in a beautiful tropical location. Yes, that's correct. I'm in my first place, Costa Rica. Um, uh, yeah, it looks wonderful. Uh, and I absolutely love Costa Rica. We actually talked about this a bit before we started recording, but it's one of my favorite countries in the world. I went there uh, several times in my early 20s uh, on my own or with friends. And then more recently, it's become uh, the favorite holiday destination for me and my family. We love spending time in Costa Rica. Uh, everyone is so friendly. Everyone seems to be so happy. The food is incredible. The weather is incredible. There's so many different uh, ecosystems that you can explore. It is paradise. So uh, what a wonderful place to be able to go back to on holidays. Yes, <laughs> especially after a couple of years of not coming. You know, it, it feels like right. uh, COVID kept me away. So. Oh, yeah. So we met for the first time just before COVID, well, the year before COVID hit. So we met in spring 2019. You were the MC for a workshop that I did an intro to deep learning at the Open Data Science Conference in New York. It was the inaugural Open Data Science Conference in New York. And the expectation yeah. was that it would happen every year, but then <laughs> the pandemic hit the next year. And yeah. I'm hopeful to have ODSC in New York again soon. But then we reconnected at ODSC West 2019, which was in San Francisco. And that was the last big conference. That was the last conference that I went to before the pandemic hit. So it was nice to, to squeeze that in. But even since then, I've felt connected to you. While we haven't had a conversation, and while I haven't interacted with your face in a video, um, yeah. uh, you have been supplying so many of the questions that I've been asking guests. So. Uh, sometimes when I have a guest coming up and I have a lot of time in advance before we're going to record the episode, I'll post on LinkedIn, hey, so-and-so is going to be on the show next week. They have expertise in this or that. 
And do you have any questions for them? And Serge, you then reply to those LinkedIn posts or those tweets with uh, the unbelievably insightful questions for me to ask the guests. And so when yours come up, I pretty much always ask them. And so listeners may have already heard your name on the program if they've been listening a lot when we get to those questions with guests. Um, so it's been great to continue to connect with you via that. And I, I knew that it would only be a matter of time before I could get you on the show uh, and our listeners could get to know you really well. Thank you for that opportunity. I'm, I'm glad to be providing the questions. I'm, I myself <laughs> am intrigued about those questions. That's why I've asked them. I'm like, oh, you know, like I'm not a podcaster myself, but, you know, like I wonder if I, I met the, your guests, you know, they're, they're often very mm -hmm. illustrious people with, you know, you know, amazing careers. And so I, 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 I think to myself, if I was still going to conferences in person, this would I, I would ask this person, right? Uh, but I yeah. haven't had that chance since you've been in the podcast and, of course, since COVID, because they're both <laughs> kind of came at the same time a little bit. Exactly. They did. I am very much looking forward to, in a completely post-pandemic world, I plan on merging those two things by having super data science episodes filmed live at conferences with a live audience. And so, you know, you could be there in the audience with your list of questions and then you can say them there live to the guest and it'll be on air. I'm really excited for that to happen. It might actually happen. We might do that as soon as March, 2022, uh, working out the details, but might do that at a conference in New York. Uh, so stay tuned for that. All right. So you yourself, in addition to being an outstanding question asker of uh, illustrious data scientists, are an illustrious data scientist yourself. So you have a book called Interpretable Machine Learning. It's an epic book of 700 pages in length. And your book, everything that you do, Serge, I've been so impressed. You put an exceptional amount of effort into every detail. I, I've rarely seen anything like it, whether it's your book, your website, recordings of presentations that I've seen you do. You put a huge amount of effort into getting every detail of preparation, execution, and then post-production. You, it, It's really, it, it's incredible. Uh, listeners, you know, anything that Surge does, I highly recommend checking it out. Um, and Thank this isn't bluster. Yeah, it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I've <laughs> waxed uh, so lyrically about Kind of the polish that people put on things uh, ever on the show before uh, like you do so uh, your book exceptional um, and so we're going to actually go over it so this episode is going to uh, focus primarily on interpretable machine learning the topic of your book later on in the episode we will talk a bit about what you do as a data scientist day to day on top of being an author uh, and maybe if there's time your journey into that but the the piece that uh, yeah, that we're really going to focus on is interpretable machine learning. So we're going to talk about what it is. We're going to talk about uh, various approaches that are available for uh, being able to interpret machine learning algorithms, as well as to kind of fine tune them. And then what's up next uh, in the interpretable machine learning realm. So we'll start off with the topic that's part one of your book. It's an introduction to interpretable machine learning. So tell us, why does interpretable machine learning matter? What is it? Why does it matter? And is it the same as explainable AI? <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Um, yeah, it is, it is very important. Um, it's very important for the same reason that you ought to debug your code. You ought to you know, understand it at an intricate level. Um, the AI... There isn't, you know, like for newcomers into the field, it's almost like an extension of software because it's often replacing software. It has like software-like properties. It's just automating things, but it's not software. I mean, it's it's not. We don't know it deterministically in the same way we can, you know, know about software, right? So when an AI does something funky, we can't just look point to a line of code and say, oh, that's why it did it. You know, it's not that easy. So um, that's that's the reason why I got into it to begin with. I had a startup many years ago, and that kind of was my frustration with that project. And once I didn't know the term for it, but once I knew the term for it, 
I mean, there was a book back then. It was like a booklet. I think it was like the very first one for practitioners on the subject. Um, and uh, once I found it, I was like, that was like the, you know, holy shit, this exists. People are talking about this problem. It's just, um, and then I found out, yeah, they've been talking about it for a long time in academia, but uh, in industry, it was like hardly made a difference. So uh, the reason it should make a difference, of course, and I, I point out it in the, the first chapter is, uh, well, there's ethical reasons, very important ones. Uh, you want your, you know, as I say, trust is mission critical. And as long as we're making products with AI, we have to understand how they're impacting and whether, you know, we could be impacting correctly like 90% of the time, but 10% of the time we're, you know, uh, you know, creating these ramifications, ethical ramifications we're not sending aware about. innocent people to jail. <laughs> exactly. 10%, That's a possibility. We're only sending innocent people to jail 10% of the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, there, there can be um, awful effects. And there's the kind of effects that just compound. They're, they're not like by themselves, like small percentage, uh, very, you know, ter you know, terrible, but they, they, they compound because they're affecting millions of people, you know? So that could be the effects of social media or something to that effect. Nobody thinks of it. It's like, it's not life and death, uh, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it certainly affects people psychologically in profound ways. Totally. So you, you have that ethical reason. And then there's also from a business reason, there's also the question of, uh, you know, public relations, um, there, it can have huge ramifications there. It can have financial ramifications as we saw with Zillow, you know, so we, we have to understand our models. We have to understand what they're for, what are, what is the scope they're useful for, you know, because they can be very good at one thing, but then we can't just repurpose them for everything. And um, so that's basically what the first chapter talks about. And to answer your other question about explainable AI, in my view, they are the same thing because they're used interchangeably, at least in industry. There's folks in academia that want to redefine them and, and give them a specific. And, and, um, and specifically, there's a camp that says interpretable machine learning is what is used in industry, you know, for like, you know, big, you know, comp, big complex models where explainable AI is, um, or do I have it the other way around? Actually, I do have the, the other way around. They say explainable AI is, is the big models, uh, you know, <laughs> deep learning and so on, the complex right. ones, and then interpretable machine learning is the, the simple one. I, I don't, I don't make that distinct. I don't yeah. distinguish. I think it's, they're used interchangeably and that's, there's no point in, in redefining them right now. Uh, as far as the terms explainable and interpretable, something I do caution about in the book, and the reason I prefer interpretable ma machine learning versus explainable AI is because explainable just adds a level of hubris to the mm. whole thing. Because mm. if you think of it semantically, interpretable is something you don't know, but you have to interpret, you know, you have to understand. Right. Where it's explainable is something, oh, I can explain it, you know? Right. And it's, it's kind of semantically tricky because, I, of course, I'm explaining an interpretation, right? So it's not, it's not easy to separate both terms, but I think people become overconfident of their explanations if they call it explainable AI. That is a beautiful explanation. And I totally agree with you that it doesn't make sense to be saying, oh, XAI is for whatever models with more parameters and interpretable machine learning isn't because I know and something we're going to get into briefly is that, or, or sorry, that we're going to get into uh, shortly. Uh, it might not be brief, but we're going to get into it shortly is that a lot of these techniques for interpreting machine learning models are agnostic to the model. So yeah. it, yeah, it doesn't matter whether it's a giant model with a billion parameters or a regression model with two parameters. It's, yes. yeah. Every week, I talk to leaders in data science about the techniques and approaches they're using to make sense of data. The common thread, learning. They all make time for learning and encourage the same of their teams. But between meetings and the actual work that you've got to complete every day, all day trainings aren't possible for most of us. This is why 
an on-demand learning platform like Udemy Business makes sense. Accessible whenever you and your team need it via either your browser or an app, with Udemy Business, you can access over 500 cutting-edge data science courses taught by industry experts and validated by other learners' real-time reviews. Amongst these 500 courses, you'll find my own Mathematical Foundations of Machine Learning course, as well as dozens of mega-popular courses from super data science instructors like Machine Learning A to Z and Data Science A to Z. If you enjoy this free podcast, I encourage you to support us by visiting business.udemy.com sds. That's business.udemy.com sds. From there, you can discover how to democratize data science learning in your teams through Udemy Business. So, um, yeah, so we'll get into that shortly. Um, let's, I think we've kind of covered the intro to the topic. So we've covered why it matters. We've talked about the, the kind of key concepts, I think, already. What are some of the big challenges in interpretable machine learning? Well, there's, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, like one of them, and it, it has nothing to do with, uh, with the model, but a lot of people think the culprit is the model, is the data, right? right? Um, I completely agree with the data-centric AI movement. Uh, data is the center of everything, you know? Mm -hmm. But uh, a lot of people are saying, okay, it's the model. It's a big complex model. And it's true, it can, it can um, augment a lot of the issues with bias uh, that are already embedded in the data. But it, it's a fool's errand to not look at the, at the data and to specifically look at the data generation process. And so there is this idea that you can just you know, take any data and, and you know, just throw the most complex model in there and just make it work. And, and that's also a bad way to look at it. So I think as long as we're trying to understand our models actively, choosing the right model for the job, I mean, that, that covers up to a certain degree that, that problem with the data. I can't say completely because we always have to uh, look at other things. Um, I think on, on the level of reliability, we have to make sure that the models, and, and that's also in, within the realm of interpretable machine learning, reliability, robustness of a model and assess it. And I think more and more folks are, are coming to terms with that. You know, one thing is having the mo model work well in the lab, you know, when you're, you know, trading, testing it with a, or evaluating it with a holdout data set. Another one is doing it with real world data as it's coming in. So there's, there's a push towards that. And that is a problem. And then there's also another issue with, with the models that has nothing to do with the data, but it precisely has to do with decisions that are made during the process. Um, and, and I already alluded to a little bit, you know, what model class you use, why you, you choose it, um, you know, uh, how do you hyperparameter tune it? Um, are you trying to mitigate something during that process or not? Um, is there some kind of domain knowledge that you have to inject into the model training? You know, often, and, and this is another thing that I cover in the book, um, people don't think of things in terms of cost. And I think it's, it's an important concept, cost-sensitive training, uh, making sure that you, you're aligned to model to the mission that's meant for, right? Making sure that, you know, like in my line of work, which we're probably going to get into later, there's also the cost. What's the cost of, you know, treating a plot, you know, with chemicals versus not treating it, you know? Right. Because that's going to come in handy for misclassification. And you want to know what, what is the mission, you know? Yeah, you have a mission of, you know, uh, of maximizing profit, but at the same time, you also, that can't be all the mission. You don't want to, you know, you want the, the plot to be sustainable in the long run. You don't want to drown it with chemicals just yeah, because. Yeah, yeah. And so to, to be clear on that point of plots and chemicals, we're talking about plots of land, not yeah. graphical plots. <laughs> yeah, agriculture, agriculture, <laughs> yeah. yes, lots of land. And, that will become clear later when we get into your agricultural expertise. Um, beautifully said. So that that it was a great introduction to why interpretable machine learning matters, what it is, the challenges that we face in the space, 
Let's move on to the second part of your book now on mastering interpretable machine learning. So there are some big sections in there. I kind of picked out the ones that I thought might be most interesting to um, to introduce to listeners mm-hmm. of, this, of this program. So the first big thing that you talk about in the mastering interpretable machine learning uh, section of your book is on feature importance. So what is that? It sounds important. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, it is, I think, utmost importance. Understand what your model finds more important. And right. uh, so, in general. So, so this is figuring out, so based on uh, some, you could have some large number of inputs uh, into especially a big uh, deep neural network today. And so the idea here is that you're you're figuring out the relative importance of individual inputs, how they contribute to some outcome. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's one of the most basic methods you can, you can use uh, for, interpretation of a model. So you 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 want to understand what when is it not only which ones are important, but when are they important? What right. values are triggered? If there are any thresholds you should be aware about. Because that can help you in the long run implement some things. They could be they could form part of a feedback loop towards the business as well. Because they they might not understand this themselves. Um, right. That there's a certain value within their their a certain feature that acts as a trigger, you know that you know it's either used for you know discrimination in a classification model to say okay it goes to this class or another, or for some reason it's also uh, a big dif- makes a big difference in a regression model as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so this is if uh, if listeners are familiar with a simple linear regression model, in that case, you have a beta weight for every single one of your inputs. And you can just say, okay, I know exactly how my input relates to my outcome. But with a lot of modern models, you could have many, many, many inputs. And so this kind of this feature importance these feature importance techniques for interpretable machine learning, they allow you to, in a way, reverse engineer that same kind of relationship to be able to say, okay, this this feature has this much impact. And uh, it's interesting, you talked about this idea of um, of thresholds, of of maybe limits. And I I wasn't sure exactly what you meant there, but it gave me the idea that um, it could show you that for some particular inputs, if you go outside of a range, if you go too low with that input, too high with that input, um, you will get unusual results with your model, perhaps. Um, yeah. Maybe. Right, right, right. And so that actually ties back to what you were saying with one of the challenges. Um, it, so with you know, in the real world, you end up with data that is out of sample, that is different from what you used to train or validate your model uh, when you were developing the model. And so maybe this kind of feature importance uh, techniques could allow you to say, okay, if we have uh, inputs that are of this value, we should be alerting somebody because it suggests that we're now dealing with inputs that are that are out of sample. We've our, our features have drifted from what our model was designed for. Exactly. And there's also cases in which you know in which the there's a monotonic relationship between the input and the output. If that's the case, you can also do something, which I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's in the third section <laughs> of the book, is called monotonic constraints, in which you can tell the model, basically, even if you weren't training with that data, it, that it's monotonic, and therefore it increases the odds of something or decreases it, or if, 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 it's, a, if it's a regression, it'll just continue down the same slope. Um, you know, the data could tell it otherwise. The model could learn from some outlier. And um, if, you t- if you've seen in a lot of regression problems, you'll find a lot of outliers actually around the edges of your training right. data. Right, right, right. And, right, and right. Those, the model doesn't know what to do with it. And, and, and especially in a regression, that won't happen because you have, you know, a linear, it's linear, so therefore it's monotonic. But when you have something nonlinear, as you do in many models, you know, who's to say what's going to happen when it's out of right. sight? 
Right, 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 right. And that that idea of monotonicity, that's the idea that if, uh, an, say, an input goes up, the output always goes up. Or if an input goes up, the output always goes down. So that's what this kind of monotonic means. There's no There's no curve in the relationship between, say, the input and the output. All right, so these kinds of techniques that we've talked about so far, particularly something like a model agnostic approach like Lime or Shap, it doesn't necessarily depend on the inner workings of mm-hmm. a model. That, in, that contrasts with a particular interpretable machine learning approach that I'd like to discuss next, which is one that is one of the most fun for me and that I've had a lot of fun experimenting with myself is visualizing convolutional neural networks. So convolutional neural networks, they are some of the most uh, visually gripping models that we have today. I I make use of a lot of them in my Deep Learning Illustrated book uh, in illustrations because they can be so fun to illustrate. You have um, these convolutional neural networks have lots of layers. And as you go deeper into the layers, you go from um, from artificial neurons that detect very simple features like straight lines um, at, at the the uh, <laughs> the end of the neural network, the input end of the neural network, and then as we go closer to the outputs, um, the the network can non-linearly recombine information. So straight lines found by the first layer of our artificial neurons of the network can be recombined into curves and corners, and then a third layer can recombine those curves and corners into textures. And then as you go deeper and deeper and deeper, we can have increasingly abstract, uh, increasingly complex visual representations handled by this neural network. So you can have these really fun visualizations of these CNNs, these convolutional neural networks that allow you to see, okay, look at this specific artificial neuron in the sixth layer. It's clearly uh, specialized to detect dog faces. And so you can kind of see the, the canonical dog face that it's learned to detect. And then you'll find some other neuron that's specialized for horses and another one for cars. And so it's really fun to look at visually. Uh, visually. And one particular uh, video that I often recommend is uh, Jason Yasinski's uh, DeepViz Toolbox, if I'm remembering the name correctly. There's a fun YouTube video that takes you on a tour through a convolutional neural network showing specific layers. And he even... He does things in real time with video where he shows a a face detecting neuron, a human face detecting neuron, and he shows how in real time he can move in uh, in the frame of his camera and the, the the that neuron which is detecting his face moves around. He brings a friend in and then you have two faces that it's detecting in real time in the video. And I don't know, so it's a it's a uh, it's such a fun area. And I know that you're particularly interested in it. Um, are there particular tools? Um, or particular resources that you recommend uh, checking out in this uh, CNN visualization space? There's there's a ton. You know, um, <laughs> there's a ton. And it also, it's not always model agnostic uh, because, of course, you know, exactly, uh, deep yeah. learning, it's so an animal. And it's, so it's going it, to, the frustrating part of it is that the libraries, they're, you know, they pick a flavor. I know your, 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 your PyTorch, uh, more leaning towards PyTorch these days. Well, there's PyTorch tools. Yeah, I although I I would say I'm bilingual, and I think there's huge value in both TensorFlow and PyTorch. All of Deep Learning Illustrated was done in TensorFlow. If I was doing it today, maybe it would be PyTorch, and maybe mm-hmm. a future edition of the book will. I, I'd probably do both because I think, um, in we're going off on a bit of a tangent, and I have YouTube talks specifically on the pros and cons of. PyTorch and TensorFlow. And my conclusion at the end of the video is that you should really learn both because yeah. once you know one, it's very easy to learn the other. In a lot of ways, they're, they're, they, they've kind of converged on each other. They used to be more different, but the TensorFlow people said, oh, look at what they're doing at PyTorch. Some of that stuff is cool. We should do it. And the PyTorch people said the same thing. Um, so they converge in a lot of ways. And so, yeah, it's pretty easy to learn both, but they have some slight um, different pros and cons. For example, PyTorch is a bit easier to use, it's easier to interpret errors, while TensorFlow still today has um, more complex deployment options for you. And uh, yeah. anyway, so I recommend learning both. If you want to be competitive in the deep learning job market, show, showing that you have both means that you'll be 
applicable to basically any deep learning job. Interested in deep learning and interested in learning live online from me? Well, then you may want to check out my deep learning certificate, which I'll be offering online starting February 2nd. Based on my book, Deep Learning Illustrated, as well as years of experience teaching my deep learning curriculum in the classroom, this is the first time I've ever offered this online, and I currently don't have plans to offer it online again, so this could be a one-time opportunity. My deep learning certificate brings high-level theory to life via TensorFlow, Keras, and PyTorch, all three of the principal Python libraries for deep learning. This foundational knowledge will empower you to build production-ready deep learning applications across all of the contemporary families, including CNNs, RNNs, GANs, and deep reinforcement learning. There will be six three-and-a-half-hour classes every other Wednesday starting February 2nd. If you miss a class, no sweat, you'll have access to the recording. Join me! We'll get to run code together, and you'll be able to ask me questions in real time if you have any. For all the details on my deep learning certificate, head to johncrone.com DLC. That's johncrone.com DLC. Anyway, I, I, I completely derailed the conversation. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, that, that, that's a good. Like my, in that chapter, um, I'm, I'm using strictly uh, the one you speak on, visualizing convolutional neural networks. I'm specifically using TensorFlow. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the reason I chose TensorFlow is because at the moment when I started the writing, um, there was only one really good library for uh, interpreting uh, convolutional neural networks with uh, PyTorch. And I'm also bilingual. I think my strengths <laughs> are more on TF right now. Yeah. But I'm 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 using more and more uh, PyTorch, and I'm feeling more and more comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, so it took me a while, you know. Uh, but <laughs> it's just one of those things. You you become used to something. You, yeah. you kind of it it becomes part of your process. So I've um, probably now that I'm doing the next version uh, of this book, the next edition, I I will switch it to PyTorch. Uh, because the the library now that I I, I forget its name, um, but it's become far more. Uh, it has more methods than it had, you know, two years ago. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll cool. go through that. All right. Well, that that was a fun uh, deep discussion on uh, automatic differentiation libraries. Um, so what's next in the field? What's what's the big up and coming uh, topic in interpretable ML? Yeah, I think I think I this was one of the questions I I asked uh, one of your uh, guests, um, your your and uh, someone you were going to interview. Uh, but yeah, I think the future of this field. I mean, of course, there's going to be always a lot of uh, work being done on uh, advancing some of the methods. There's every year there's new flavors of SHAP and Lime. Uh, there's there's new ways to improve uh, GradCam integrated gradients and and apply them to specific use cases. You know, apply them to graph networks, apply them to um, you know all all and uh, transformers and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think a lot there's going to be a convergence in the future of these methods with um, causal inference. I think that's where it's heading, um, uh, because we're we're also, you know, there we need more we need better more robust explanations. It's also become not good enough to say, uh, look at this uh, saliency map. It suggests such and such, right? Um, how can we we be certain that that saliency map that shows that this picture is indeed a dog is always going to work? How can we guarantee that? So there's more and more methods appearing in, in, in scholarly journals uh, looking into ways of making robust explanations. And they often have something to do with causal methods. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I think it's, it's, it's going to become a bit more complicated than what people are used to in interpretable machine learning, but it's also like a natural like progression. So that's why when I mentioned counterfactuals, I think it's it's like a, a very uh, solid link between 
associational kind of uh, um, algorithms and the causal one. So, uh, and another thing I think will also happen is Mm -hmm. right now we don't, we don't have like a a framework. Um, I'm talking about a legal framework, a technical framework with standards and so on, because precisely it's, it's evolving field. But I think a lot of those things will coalesce. And, and the reason they have to coalesce is one, not only because there's a need, but also there's, there's going to be an increase of no code and low code um, uh, tools out there. And they're, you're, you're, they're going to want to incorporate a lot of these methods. And, and some of them already exist and they're constantly being improved, you know, um, Perceptive Labs, Fiddler. Um, on the causal side, you have causal lens, um, and uh, and they're they're incorporating a lot of, uh, of of these methods in their framework, which is completely like drag and drop. So I see a lot of the machine learning in the future is going to be drag and drop. Um, so that kind of frees our hands from all the programming stuff that we have to do day by day, and 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 can and can lead it to more productive things. Um, not that I have anything wrong with pro- uh, programming, but I think um, I think it takes up a lot of time. You know, all the programming, all the manual tasks of you know sorting data and cleaning it, and the data wrangling and so on. I think once that part, it, it doesn't necessarily have to become completely automated, but you know, certain bits and pieces, it becomes part of a pipeline we can visualize, and then we can test all these different hypotheses which I think is at the core of what interpretable machine learning will become in the future, which is you don't necessarily know all the answers. You know, you don't assume them, you test them and you test them rigorously and you have all the tools to do that with a click of a button. So you, you know, like it's, it's like you have things, it's like flying a plane. You have all these different buttons and all, and sure it's complicated, but the plane can fly itself. You don't want it to all the time, but mm-hmm. it can, right? Mm-hmm. So, AutoML, interpretable machine learning, um, you know, no code, all all going to connect and converge, and at the same time, a legal technical framework, um, which will kind of uh, connect with all of this. You know, uh, blockchain to maintain, of course, uh, some traceability of all the decisions made. Uh, throughout the modeling process, um, as well as a lot of, you know, things that are commonplace already in MLOps, you know, of servability, the drift, and so on, to make sure that's always on course, because that's that's an important part. You know, you, you train the models, and then you let them out, and, and that's not the end of the story once they're in production, of totally. course. So I, I think there's going to be a lot of that in the future. Um, and new new professions like uh, AI auditors and so on. Cool. You have one of the richest views of what I think is definitely coming over the next decade that uh, anybody has expressed on the show. You touched on so many great topics there. Causality, legal issues, auto ML, uh, whole new professions coming about. Amazing answer, Serge. Thank you. So, Thank you. Um, yeah. Great being able to see into the future of the data science industry in general. Let's look into the future a little bit about your specific publishing. So I understand that um, this book was such a hit. You've got a second edition coming out soon. Uh, how soon is it coming out? And what are the changes that, that there will be in that second edition? Okay, it's, it's coming out in August, I think, July or August. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, it's it's going to have new examples. It's going to have an entire new chapter devoted to NLP transformers. It's mm-hmm. very exciting because something that was a glaring omission from my my current book, um, my current edition, is that it doesn't. Only one chapter deals with NLP, mm-hmm. um, and and it does through um, through I think SVM. Um, it wasn't even a, a deep learning. Uh, example. So um, I think uh, that that's I, I asked, and <laughs> hundreds of people answered in my poll. And what uh, they preferred me to write about was NLP transformers. Nice. So, yeah. So 
natural language processing with transformers, big uh, deep neural networks. If you want to learn more about NLP transformers, we recently did a whole episode of the Super Data Science Podcast on that topic. It's episode number 513 with Dennis Rothman. And I think that that is actually the same person that you asked um, about what would be happening in the future of uh, in yeah. interpretable machine learning. Very yeah. cool. Uh, and then that isn't your only book in the works. You also have a responsible AI book that you're co-authoring. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. It's, it, it takes, I, I only, for, for all the bias mitigation and, and bias detection stuff, I have like two, two and a half chapters in my book. But this, this book is entirely about that. So I'm very excited uh, to, deal, uh, to, to work on that because it's, at its core, one of the most important problems in machine learning um, and in, in interpretable machine learning. I prefer to see uh, interpretable machine learning as a pyramid. Uh, it's, it's often seen as having three layers. You have fairness, accountability, and transparency. Most people focus on the transparency. You say interpretable machine learning and like, oh, you know, what does a model think of? You know, what, what is it thinking? How does it make decisions, right? But I, I argue that it's, it's important to look at it from the top, you know, of the pyramid, fairness and, and accountability are of utmost importance. And if you uncover those, transparency is the low hanging fruit. Cool. Uh, can't wait to check out that book as well. So we've got the second edition of Interpretable ML coming out and Responsible AI not too long after. So despite being such a prolific writer churning out books at an incredible pace and not just any books, but gigantic 700 page books with an extraordinary amount of detail and tons of hands-on examples. Somehow on top of doing all of that, you also do have a day job. So yeah. you work for Syngenta, which is a, a Swiss based company. They're huge, about 50,000 employees around the world. And they're one of the world's leading agricultural companies. So for example, they sell seeds and crop protection products. So at this uh, leading agricultural company, you have the title of climate and agronomic data scientist or agronomic. I'm not even sure that I pronounce it correctly because it's one of the first times I've seen that word. So what does that mean to be a climate and agronomic data scientist? Uh, and is there any interpretable element to what you do in that job? Absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, climate and agronomic. I mean, it's it, most people say that and say, okay, you work with climate. And it's true. I work with weather. A lot of, a lot of my models, I would say all of them or nearly all of them have some weather data in them. Right. But the core of everything is agronomic. And, and within Syngenta, which has the crop protection side, which is all the you know, pesticides and herbicides and all that, and the seed side, it also has an ever-growing digital agronomy side. And digital agronomy is the department my department is embedded in, and it's, it has to do with uh, giving farmers insights. Um, you know, so the insights can be, okay, you need to plant early because this is going to happen with the weather or you need to apply this pesticide right now because uh, you're, you have a high likelihood of having this disease come up. Um, uh, and there's also things that are computer vision based. So they have mm -hmm. to do with, uh, you know, the farmer pointing the camera at the, at the plant and then it telling it, you know, it's achieved this amount of growth or it has this, the, this, the science of this disease or so on. Also, there's a lot of precision in it, which is why there's also the field of precision agriculture. So you can also determine by the look of in, the, in uh, I don't know, satellite images or drone images, or, or even within the tractor itself, you can tell if, uh, you know, what areas need to be sprayed, you know, mm. and how much should you spray them. So there, there's those components as well. Um, so I, I work mostly with, um, um, time series, tabular data, and to some degree, um, uh, image data. Also, what does it have to do with interpretability? Um, a lot, <laughs> a lot, uh, because, um, actually, um, there, there is uh, a lot of the data I have 
um, was made for a certain purpose. So mm-hmm. it, it can be biased. So I have to find ways mm-hmm. of devising it. I, I also have to check with agronomists. I have to check, does this look right? I mean, this can't be right, right? And, and so I have to show them what, I've, what I can see the model sees through interpretation methods to kind of check things with them. Because uh, one, one big concern with machine, bringing machine learning into this field is that this field for you know, 30 years or so has been using uh, statistical methods. Um, and by statistical methods, I mean, you know, linear regression to some degree, logistic regression, but mostly linear, um, and, uh, AB testing, P values, all that, ANOVA, what have you, a whole lot of that. And so that's, that's, Mm -hmm. um, a lot of agronomists, chemists, and so on domain experts, they, they're, they're very knowledgeable and that's the tools they have been using. So when you come up to them and you say, I'm going to, you know, uh, use machine learning with them, their biggest concern is, okay, well, how do I understand it? You know, right. uh, will, will Where it are the P be values? biased? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I, I have to give them something back. And, and, and that's, that's how I do that. Cool. So you've just opened my mind to a whole new area. So agronomy, I guess, this is like the science, the study of uh, crop yields of like kind of maximizing production, I guess. Agriculture. Yeah. 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 And, and and also there's ever growing concern of making it sustainable which is right. one of the biggest missions of agriculture right now because uh because of climate change there's a big question mark of can we still maximize yield given all uh the all the different unknowns that we have you know which is well we have el nino this year will we have uh you know a big hurricane you know will be a drought so we, we have to deal with those uncertainties as well as, of course, insects. Of course, a lot of insects, they're driven by uh, climate patterns. Mm-hmm. So if it's very moist, then you might have some kind of insects or some kind of fungus. You know, if it gets really dry, they, they might not have food. So they'll, they'll try to eat the, the, the food that we grow. So, right. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things. And then there's ways in which that affects the soil and are therefore our ability to plant. So it's, it's some very, very complicated causal chain. <laughs> very cool. So it's, it's interesting to hear, um, to hear you say this in, uh, the most recent guest episode that we had episode 537, which was on uh, data science trends for 2022, Sadie St. Lawrence opened my eyes to how complex tractors have become these days and all the kinds of sensors that they have. And you just built on that even more talking about farmers being able to in real time be taking images and uh, being able to do precision agriculture and know that they should be uh, applying more water or fertilizer or pesticide to a particular area. Um, And yeah, maximizing the amount of food that we have for this growing population on the planet that is still expected to uh, continue to grow for several more decades. Um, so I think we're something like about 8 billion people on the planet now, but we're going to get to about 11 billion um, mm-hmm. before we're projected to have that uh, come down. And so this kind of thing, using machine learning, using data and machine learning to uh, maximize crop yield in a way that minimizes uh, uh, future climate change while simultaneously adapting to the climate change that is happening. Wow. Uh, it sounds like a very cool area to be in. Um I'm, I'm sure you're going to have some people looking up the jobs page uh, for Syngenta looking for uh, data science jobs there because it sounds like really impactful work and really cool work that you're doing. Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> um, are there particular tools that you use day to day? Anything like interesting tools, I guess, other than uh, interpretable machine learning tools, which we've already talked about. Are there particular tools that you use day to day that you think listeners might find particularly interesting? Well, I mean... We, we have uh, tools that a lot of people are aware about, you know, SageMaker. Um, we recently also got uh, Balohai. I don't know if you've heard of them. No, so to, um, and even SageMaker, you could explain. So that's an AWS, an Amazon Web Services tool. Yeah. And it allows, uh, it makes it easier to automate and deploy machine learning. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, and... 
So something that I'd like to ask you, I know that there's like a big story here, um, but maybe we can kind of uh, condense it into the key points. But I know that uh, you've had, uh, you know, maybe not the most uh, direct path into being a data scientist, but the specific thing that I want to ask you is you only recently completed a master's in data science in 2019. That's true. That's true. And now so you already have an amazing book that's out. The second edition is coming out soon. You have another separate book in the works. So how did you become such a deep expert in particular domains like interpretable machine learning so quickly that you could author such uh, dense, rich content on it for everyone to enjoy? Do you have any particular productivity or success tips that you use uh, day to day? <laughs> Um, well, I, I do, I do have productivity tips regarding writing the book. I, I mean, I, I, I set aside some time for it. Um, and I made <laughs> sure that I was in the mood. I made yeah. sure that I was in the right mood also. So even if I set aside some time, if I was in the right mood for writing, I would simply switch it with some other time slot and do something else. Um, it's also good to, um, always have some kind of uh, physical activity. And often I would find myself getting inspired and I would have to come back from running and, and start typing right away. Because I kind of, uh, I didn't know what it does, but <laughs> you would know that better, but kind of makes the blood flow. And all of a sudden you're like, all the neurons are firing and you're like, God damn it, I wish I was in front of a computer, but I'm running. Um, so <laughs> that, that would happen. Um, and as far as my... Um, Trajectory, yeah, I was. I recently completed a master's. What was it like a couple of years ago? Yeah, but, 2019. Uh, so just, yeah, just two, three yeah, years ago. Yeah, yeah. But um, I'm not. I'm not new to data or analytics in general. I, see. Uh, I mean, that I've makes been a doing, lot more sense. I've been doing <laughs> SQL since 1999. Uh, um, you know, ETL since on big data since. 2006, Python since 2009, and machine learning since 2015. But the reason I got into uh, do my master's was because I kind of found like I I didn't have the statistic grounding that I thought I needed to have. I mean, I had programming skills. I I mean, you would say I was kind of a hacker to you know because I would kind of find ways to solve things. Mm -hmm. um, with the tools I had available, which at that time, many years ago, did not include machine learning, but I would find ways of, of solving problems, you know, whether it was a fraud detection problem, it would be through a rule-based system, I would find patterns in the data and solve it, right. you know, and of course, you could say, well, that's, that's not really data science, but uh, I mean, well, I, had a strong connection. <laughs> I had a strong connection with the data. And I realized that I needed better tools for that. And I needed to improve the tools I already had. So even though I had used machine learning for my startup back in 2015, 16, and 17, I, I kind of felt like I had big gaps. There were only the tools I knew and then tools that I was kind of too afraid to kind of learn on my own. And, and I wanted to, to learn them. So... I, one of the coolest things when I went to master's, I took a computer vision course, right? Mm. So um, I could, uh, I uh, got to learn computer vision from a computer vision expert teaching me all, like all the aspects of, you know, pattern recognition, pre-AI, how that worked, you know, open CV, how to deal with those. And then like one of the things that, kind of came at the end of the course was, okay, by the way, this is how a convolutional neural network works. And so, <laughs> but you, you, I already had all like the background. So right. that was super valuable to have all the background, the mathematical background, the, the pattern recognition stuff, understanding how it works in the brain, obviously not to your extent of knowledge, but I, I think I, I, even though it was a short period, it, it worked for me. I'm not saying it's, everybody's path but mm -hmm. the masters worked for me in the sense that i covered all these gaps i went strictly with uh, an agenda and it was like 
I'm going to take this course. I'm going to take this course. I'm going to take this course. And there were things I thought I needed. And it worked wonders because um, I, I think I, I was kind of a data scientist before, but it kind of sealed all those gaps and, and helped propel me in a way where I felt more confident about, because I had, I still do obviously have some, and I think it's, it's good to have some imposter syndrome, but, uh, you know, like pre my master's, my imposter mm-hmm. syndrome was through the roof. <laughs> You know, <laughs> how could I dare to say I was a data scientist right. if, if I didn't I didn't have that solid understanding of statistics I thought I needed? Yeah, that's so that's a, a good tip for listeners in general, I suppose, is that if you feel like you have some of the pieces of the data scientist puzzle and you'd like to obtain certifiably broad exposure to all of the key aspects of the field um, so that you can shore up any uh, particular gaps any big gaps, then yeah, something like a a master's in data science could be just the right thing for you. Very cool. All right. So other than your own books, do you have a book recommendation for us? Yeah, it's one I'm nearly done with right now. It's called Causal Inference, The Mixtape. Nice. And it has a very good... kind of reintroduction to probability and regression. Um, and then it goes through every single topic. A lot of the stuff here I wasn't familiar with because it comes from a more obscure, like uh, kind of academic topics, but there, a lot of these things are being resuscitated, you know? So he talks about things that were like, they came out in the seventies and people ignored them because as it happens, you know, like they didn't find applications for it or there wasn't enough computation to deal with them using these methods. So they, they kind of stored, stayed dormant for 30 years and only came about back in the last decade. And of course, I, I wasn't aware about this uh, research. So I was like, super interesting to say, okay, I've had this problem and, and, and this fixes that. You know? So he talks about discontinuities in data and how they're indicative of some kind of uh, treatment effect by a human. Mm. So if you find in the data that something is suddenly jumping, uh, you know, basically after a threshold, there might be a reason that in the data, data generation process, there's something in there, you know, some kind of causal explanation. Right. And it'd be irresponsible not to include it in your model, whether it's a machine learning model or, you know, a causal model. So... I, I just find this book uh, really revealing and uh, I, it's been a wonderful like holiday treat to, to <laughs> awesome. finish it. <laughs> nice. That's a really cool recommendation, Serge. So as I started off this show by saying, and this has become only more clear for our listeners as we've gone through this episode with you, you are a remarkable fount of knowledge on a broad range of topics associated with the data science field, especially interpretable machine learning. So no doubt, lots of listeners will want to follow you to keep up with you on your latest. How should people do that? Um, They can follow me on LinkedIn, on Twitter. I'm just typing my name. I think I'm the only one, (laughs) Uh, which is great. Uh, We'll include uh, links in the show notes. Yeah, and they can also find me through search.ai. That's my yeah. personal website. You've got a really slick website, as I mentioned right at the top of the show. There, yeah, you've done an amazing job. And I was particularly blown away by no matter where you are in the world, listener, uh, if there is a place that your book can possibly be purchased in their country, it is listed uh, comprehensively on your website. I was, yeah, it just, <laughs> you know, the, the, yeah, I, it, it, that to me, it was kind of, it exemplifies this thing that I've known about you for a long time. Just your the level of detail that you go into with everything is is extraordinary, and that's just one more example. All right, Serge, it's been so wonderful having you on the show. I've loved reconnecting. I've learned so much. We'll have to have you on again sometime to learn even more. Sure thing. Count on it. What deep expertise Serge has in both interpretable ML and agronomic data science, and I love how clearly he illustrates everything he describes with plenty of examples. 
In today's episode, Serge filled us in on the social and financial ramifications of interpreting models incorrectly, that data matter as much as your model for avoiding the misapplication of a model, how counterfactuals enable us to determine what a model can't do and therefore also what it can, how he sees more causal inference within future interpretable ML techniques, and he talked about how agronomy, the science of crop production, has gigantic as yet unrealized opportunity for optimization with data science, enabling us to nourish everyone on our planet while minimizing the negative environmental impact of agriculture. As always, you can get all the show notes, including the transcript for this episode, the video recording, any materials mentioned on the show, the URLs for Serge's social media profiles, as well as my own social media profiles at superdatascience.com 539. That's superdatascience.com 539. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd greatly appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcasting app or on the Super Data Science YouTube channel. I also encourage you to let me know your thoughts on this episode directly by adding me on LinkedIn or Twitter and then tagging me in a post about it. Your feedback is invaluable for helping us shape future episodes of the show. Finally, here's something fun and new for you if you'd like to check out a detailed spreadsheet of all of the book recommendations we've had in the 500 plus episodes of this podcast, you can make your way to superdatascience.com books. All right. Thank you to Ivana, Mario, Jaime, JP, and Kirill on the Super Data Science team for managing and producing another fascinating episode for us today. Keep on rocking it out there, folks, and I'm looking forward to enjoying another round of the Super Data Science podcast with you very soon.